This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome, everybody, to What's in Store, the show where we cover hot topics at the cross-section of retail and real estate. I'm Carly Iacono, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris Ressa. Welcome, Chris. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? Excellent. Happy fall. Happy Halloween. Any yes. uh, big plans for next week? Oh, boy. So I'm Leonardo from the Ninja Turtles. So Wow. Yes. Uh, Didn't see that coming. My kids, uh, my son is a Ninja Turtle fan. He's Michelangelo. So okay. I, had, I had to be a Ninja Turtle to go trick-or-treating. We must get pictures of the whole family together, or at least you dressed up as a Ninja I, Turtle. I, so it came in the mail uh, last Friday. Okay. And I walked home. And I saw this, you know, thing from like Spirit Halloween on my, uh, in front of my garage. No one had got it and it was a little rainy and it was late on Friday. I worked late on Friday. And so I got it and I came in and like everyone was watching TV on the, the couch in the living room. No one heard me come in and I went to the bathroom and I, and I changed. And they were like so focused on the TV. Right. And I just wanted to make sure this fit, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm not a, I'm not a good like, when the costumes are like three sizes, like hopefully this works out. Like, so I, I, I went into the living room. No one even like heard me come in. It was like, I didn't exist. I went and I sat in this one chair on the other side of the room and like no one acknowledged me, but I was in the full costume. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's amazing. Then, Did your kids turn around and up, freak out? And then there was a major freak out when as soon as like my daughter yeah. like turned around and saw like, there's a Ninja Turtle in the room. There was a right. major freak out. Wow, that is perfect execution. Yeah. I think you won uh, major dad points there. That's, so, that's great. Too bad nobody could get that on video. That had to be pretty fantastic. That's the story. Nice. Well, enjoy, and we look forward to pictures. You're yeah, not getting I, away without sharing them. So I'll say, I'll say something. If you want, if you want to post that in the in the I'll in the send show you notes. My, in the show notes, I'll send it. Please do. That sounds okay. good. Can't wait. All right. We appreciate everyone tuning in for our monthly series. Today, we are talking about the fervor that is happening around retailers trying to open new stores. So what is causing this extreme competition for retail space in the face of very restrictive monetary policy, potential recession, all of the headlines in the other side saying doom and gloom? But retailers don't seem to be listening. So today's episode is taking a deeper dive into what is causing the competition that continues to intensify for retail space. All right, let's kick it off. Uh, Chris, we have so many good points on this, but why don't we just start with why are retailers focused on opening new stores in the first place? Why aren't they sitting on the sidelines like so many other people waiting for this economic situation to unfold? Well, I think if you if you go back in time to the last two periods of time 
where retailers really put a pause on new store growth at scale. It was the great financial crisis and it was spring of 2020, right? And in the great financial crisis, right, we had this, we had really what I would call two major things. One was obviously the consumer stress from the great financial crisis. But then we had this question of viability in certain retail store formats because of e-commerce. And if you went into COVID, it was the same thing, which is we had this stress to the consumer, you know, people potentially getting laid off, furloughed. And then we had this question of the viability of the physical store and everyone's going to move to shop online. And I think right now it's been settled and the case is not only are we not getting rid of physical stores, we need physical stores to support whatever e-commerce growth happens. And e-commerce is still a small portion of total retail sales. And so I think that's a major difference between now and those periods of time where we had and new store um, slowdowns. And then I so think- just, Hold yeah. on, hold on. Can't move on yet. So to support yeah. e-commerce, are you suggesting that it's a branding requirement that they need the physical presence? Or is it more on the fulfillment side that they're actually shipping from stores and they need to host or they need to store the merchandise in these locations and they found that the retail stores are just as efficient or maybe less expensive than industrial farther from the consumer or both. I think at DLC, we have a line that says, um, you can't make money in clicks without the bricks. So uh, yeah, exactly like that. And we put that, we've, we've used that everywhere. And I think it's all of it, Carly. I think one, I think that um, to scale from an e-commerce perspective is significantly costly and it, their profitability is still elusive if e-commerce alone. And then on a four-wall EBITDA perspective of an individual four walls of a store, there are many, if not the majority, stores that are actually profitable on a four-wall basis. And so the cost of entry is higher because you have to physically construct the store, but it's a profitable. And you see some of this happen um, you know, some of the proof of this through all the direct-to-consumer brands that have ended up opening physical stores. I think the next part is some of the traditional retailers have figured out the logistics end and are starting to fulfill from store. We are seeing many and many retailers fulfilling from the store. And so that logistics challenge of fulfilling from store that has been a problem since before the COVID-19 pandemic is starting to unwind and retailers have started to figure out how to make that work. And then you obviously have the branding component, which is, you know, many retailers will say when they open a store in a given market, their e-commerce sales will rise in that market. When they close a store in a market, their e-commerce sales will fall in that market. When, when they're fulfilling from store, is there a minimum square footage requirement that you're seeing to add a fulfillment piece to the store or is it just as 
as simple as they're using the same stock room and just packing it in one side and pushing it out to the, the front of the store on the other side? I don't think anybody, I, I don't think every, you know, all one size fits all. I think everybody is doing it differently. And, you know, when you look at some of the retailers who fulfill from store, whether it's Ulta, Target, um, they're all doing some things, but inside the store, but I haven't seen like massive size increases or massive size decreases. I think it's more like individual, how they figure it out in the store. Um, but I don't have a number to point to you because I don't think it's one size fits all because everyone's supply chain network is completely different. Everyone's digital capabilities are completely different. So I think it's different everywhere. That makes sense. So we've established that the retailers need the stores. They want the stores. But why now? Why do you think there is such competition? Is it fear of missing out? Is it future planning? Is it just tremendous sales and they are capitalizing on that? What's your feeling about timing and why we're seeing such pressure right now? Well, a couple of things. So one, I think that if you have a proven model, especially in the chain store model, whether it's food and beverage, fitness, dry goods, um, I think the easiest way to grow top line sales is more stores in spaces, you know, white space in geographies where you don't have stores or infilling in markets where you have holes, right? If you have a proven model um, that can be, that is profitable, it's a very, you know, uh, replicatable thing to do and open new stores. So, you know, if you take the dollar stores, they have a pretty good formula in the type of market, in the type of um, uh, demographics where they're successful. And if there are white spaces where there are no new score count adds to the top and bottom line. Um, and so it's actually, it helped, it could be helpful in a downturn because if you do have some store sales that potentially cop down, this could be helpful opening new stores in markets where you have just net new customers, net new white space. Um, and so that that's one reason. That's so that's so counterintuitive, but true, right? If same store sales are softening, how do you boost the top line? Well, you add more stores. That's, right to, to increase to sales but that's that's certainly one way to expand so interesting okay yeah i think the uh, the other i think the other thing is like if you have if you believe in your business and you've got a strong track record uh, there's still very little vacancy to speak of and i wouldn't call it fomo call it finally access to a market has come to light and you want to take advantage of the opportunity. Maybe some softening has caused that specific space in that specific market or that specific real estate to become available. And you have to be nimble enough to take advantage of those market opportunities. And retailers are doing that today. Now, what's the characteristics of the retailers that you're talking to that are clamoring for space in your centers? Are you seeing the household names, the nationals be the most active, or is there a new surge from small business? 
who's calling you and trying to beat down the door? So I think all the national retailers are, you know, I said all, but many of the national retailers are who are doing well and have come out of COVID doing well, we're doing well before COVID. I think all those groups are still adding store count. Uh, I think franchising has become so big that there's all these new franchise concepts that have come to light. And then I think all these, you know, over the last 20 years, all this, all these new uses coming together that operate in a retail format now are adding to that, whether it's service-based uses, the health, right, the health, the health and beauty service area is just, you know, God bananas. Uh, it's still expanding, um, whether that's a med spa, a, 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 a salon suite concept, uh, whether that's, you know, the Ulta's of the world and cosmetics. So you have the health and service end, uh, you have the healthcare end, which is the medical, you have the fitness end. You also have all this food and beverage, you have entertainment. So like people are talking about like all these, you know, who are the retailers? And I think they're, you know, there's a lot of different ones that have come on the scene and starting to really all come together, you know, in the last 20 years. And then, you know, the one that I thought was going to slow down uh, significantly was the small business and, and, and franchise world because, you know, access to capital at modest pricing is super important. But if you look at like some small business formation stats, and this is not just retail, this is in anything, it is higher than pre-pandemic levels. It's not at its peak, which I think was in like 20, late 2020, 2021, but it's like, it's higher than pre-pandemic levels and it's growing right now. Small business formation is growing, which I wouldn't have thought of, but, um, and we're seeing that down to the retail level from entrepreneurs wanting to open up new stores. I think the stats that we pulled out, uh, August is up 1.3% compared, um, oh, September is up 1.3% compared to August, even after being adjusted for seasonality. And then I think that the time frame you were referencing was the three-year period 2020 through the end of 22 was up 89% from the, the 10 years prior. And so we were coming off just record growth in small businesses, but we're still seeing growth on top of that uh, yes. recently. So that's amazing. And those are just census numbers. I mean, you really can't argue with them. That's just it's, straight it's data. It's really fascinating that all the small business formation that's happening. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious at the capitalization of all those small businesses, but uh, it is fascinating. And so, um, you know, clearly all of that's not in retail, but you know, there's some tech involved in that. There's healthcare. There's a bunch of things, but I think it just speaks to like the you know a little counter to the narrative that everything's slowing down. Which um, you know, small businesses are looking ahead and saying, you know, I need to figure out how to open my business and get access to some market share in whatever industry they're in. Right. Good news. Good news for sure. Let's shift yeah. gears a little bit and talk about the supply side. Obviously, development is something that that I study carefully because it affects our day-to-day -day business. 
what are you seeing on the retail development side? I'll, I'll just share, you know, from our perspective, it's been very difficult to make deals pencil. Cap rates are expanding. Construction costs are still really high. And frankly, rents are not keeping up, uh, although they are still rising. It's not the same pace to outpace the other expenses associated with the deal. So it's tough. I think new retail development is really tough. Are you seeing things a different way or has that been the case um, in your business as well? Yeah, I think I think it's very challenging. The, the lack of new development is causing a boom to people who own existing real estate today. That's been, you know, that's been a narrative that's gone on for a while, which is retail space has had muted new construction. And therefore, if you own existing real estate that, you know, retailers are forced to look in existing real estate versus new construction because there is no new construction to speak of. I think when people were talking about that, they were talking about traditional shopping centers. I think what's changed is that, you know, right now it's challenging even to do what was the creme de la creme of like freestanding net lease developments. Those are slowing. Those are very hard to pencil. Uh, and it's because if you just think about in the late teens, early 2020s, you know, these were financial market driven deals, right? Like the rent didn't, even in the face of construction costs rising, the rent didn't have to rise as much because the cap rates kept falling and interest rates kept falling and you could financially engineer the development deal. And today it's back to the fundamentals. It's back to the rent and what does it cost? And those fundamentals are a bit out of whack today, which is forcing people to look at existing products and slowing down some development deals. You don't have to go far. If you go on, you know, uh, Twitter or, or X right now, and you look at some of the things on new store, net lease development, there is a lot of uh, a lot of discussions to be had, both positive and negatively. It is pretty fascinating what's going on on X as it relates to this topic. But uh, it's a challenge. And, you know, everyone's like, well, construction costs have to go down. I don't know. I mean, construction costs are a bit like college education. Like the steel might go down, but the lumber goes up and then lumber might come down, but labor goes up. And it feels like it's a bit like college education where it just always rises. Right. Right. And I think that, you know, in order, there's going to have to be some slowdown and you're going to end up in a place where over time the rents rise before we get back to, you know, meaningful construction i think on the on the new shopping center end this is already happening there's virtually very few new shopping centers being built this, this worked itself out in the you know the mid and late 2000 teens and everything's still penciled on the net lease development side and now you know that part of the business is going to have to work itself out and it's it's in the early innings there that is for sure. We look at these every day for developers, projects in the works, projects coming online, things that are nearing completion. And what does the exit look like and how do they maximize proceeds? Because um, that's our core business and uh, the market changes every week. It's amazing. So very, very uh, time sensitive business and very sensitive to market conditions, but important. Yeah. 
Now, we know the retailers want to expand. Developers want to, to do projects because that's their business. So how does the model change? Um, we've been talking a bit about uh, fee development. What's your experience with that? And where do you see that shaking out? I, I think fee development is going to rise. And generally speaking, and speaking to some retailers, I won't mention names, 30 in the, in the market looking to do fee development deals, which is and, and they're, they're not going to tie up their capital to do their whole expansion in this, but they're looking at ways to make sure they can continue to open stores and not miss out on a fleet of sales in those markets. And to do that, they need, they need stores. So one of the ways maybe to do that is to do, um, you know, pay a developer to do all the work, but not actually buy the property and they would buy it. And the developer would do the work, but the tenant would spend the construction and they would finance the deal versus the developer doing it. Now, most retailers don't wanna be in the real estate business and own real estate, but uh, you're gonna see that's, and I think it's a little, to me, it's been telling, which is they, that that's the, the, the strategy I've heard some of these retailers say, that they wanna partner with developers to do a fee basis versus like just, contribute more capital to the cost to maybe buy down rent or pay more rent at first where they're going to is they're going to see how, you know, how much they can, you know, cut into their total new store by doing fee development. So I think this is uh, super interesting. Like again, demand is the demand versus supply is insane. There's so much more demand than there is supply. I think how people are attacking the problem to access supply is potentially has the opportunity to not be as traditional as in years past when that conundrum has happened. How do the numbers break down on this? I would love to see a side, maybe you've done this, a side-by-side -side comparison of a fee development versus a traditional development. How much is the retailer really saving by taking on what, in my opinion, is a risk of owning the real estate when they, you know, that the exit might be variable and it might take more time than they think. We know they don't, don't want to own the real estate. So they're factoring an exit in, which can change. So they're taking on more risk at what cost savings? Is there a percentage or is it not uh, enough data yet? Oh, I mean, fee development's not new. So there's, they all have data because they've all, they did some of it last year and the year before. They're just, right. you're going to see it increase. I think historically speaking, you would see, you know, they they would, and you know, there's some retailers who self-development is, you know, has always been a big part of there. I, I talked to retailers, you know, before where we are today, and they would be a self-developer unless they couldn't figure out how to access the real estate. And mm -hmm. The piece of real estate you had, you were able to tie up and they're right. like, okay, fine. We'll let you be the developer. You could own it. You could be our landlord. Um, because that's it, but there's always been self-development and, you know, in the past few years, they've been looking for a spread, but the spread needs to be, the math is very different on how they're figuring it out. Yeah. If they could get to net neutral, you know, build it to a six and sell it at a six that, you know, for some retailers, every performance is different, but in some retailers that could work for them. That's all and they then, need. Yeah. Right. Right, because right. they're and at that point they own it. So you can mm -hmm. model cash flows for 30, 40 years. Right. Right. From from the actual retail operation, because 
you're not you're not beholden to only a 10-year term with maybe two five-year options you now have the ability to like whatever your model says you can since you control your own the real estate you have a little bit different uh it's a different map and i learned this a, a long time ago but one of the ways it was reinforced when i went to the bed bad bankruptcy you know my team and i are like doing some math and couldn't believe some you know you know how some of the retailers got to their math is related to what they're willing to pay for the lease because we were looking at ours like we can't make this work because they're using the they're using the real estate they have a different pro forma that's just not real estate there's other things so anyway I would love to see those side by side. So I'm going to make some uh, good friends with a retailer so I can see how they're looking at these different analysis because sure. it is interesting. So we've covered a lot. The last thing we want to touch on is why retailers are so bullish on their business. And one thing I think that obviously is timely where we are given the, the time of year is holiday sales. And what's interesting when you and I were speaking about this is the difference in the headlines. Holiday sales are expected to be much weaker. Holiday sales are expected to be up 5%, some of the data is saying. Um, what do you think's real? What's driving holiday sales and what are your expectations, Chris? I, I, think, I think at the end of the day, the the train left the building and people are spending. And I don't think, I think holiday sales will be whatever your expect, whatever expectation is. I think they're going to be slightly above expectation. I say that when expectation is clearly mixed and I would say, generally speaking, there's this cautious optimism, which is just a, a punt really, but that's when everyone's really cautiously optimistic. I think, one of the things that I point to that historically that I say the trains left the building is it's rare for us to have a good back to school and a poor holiday. Right. That That's rare. And since we had a positive back to school, I would assume we had a positive holiday. It would, and positive is, you know, it's like beauty is in the eye of the polder. Like what does positive mean, right? If you're expecting double digit sales comps, that's not going to happen. But if, you know, if we were up 3%, is that, is that bad? And then you right. have some who would say because of inflation that is, or, or you would have some saying, well, you know, it, it, it's good because how good the last few years, like, I think generally speaking, one of the things that I like to look at when I think of this is I look at some of the average store sales on a score wall basis of retailers. But what is the average unit? And many are significantly higher than they were pre-COVID. And then I think about it like, okay, did their costs increase proportionally? And I would say on a many cases, they did not, right? Obviously labor's up, right? But they've been able to squeeze profit at, you know, accretive profit out of incremental sales because a lot of these retailers have scale. And when you have right. scale, you're able to you're able to you're able to really you know squeeze profit out of places where where others might not be able to. So um, 
you know, if the average store sales of retailers came down significantly, I'd raise my eyebrows, but that's not the direction, you know, at least over a five-year period that's happened. And that's really the difference between top-line sales and NOI, right? All of those things that happen in between the lines, the expense savings, the scaling, the efficiency of operations, but I think that's just a lot harder to report on at that detail. It's much easier to just throw out sales numbers and compare them. But the fact that sales are still good, maybe you could attribute it to inflation, maybe there's more to the story, um, but really how that shakes down to net operating income, I think is more important. And it sounds like you're saying at least that you think that trend is positive as well because of other cost savings along the way. Depending on the retailer, I think there's right. some, in some instances, some inflation is good for retailers and um, they don't give it all back. So they are able to retain some of that, you know, when, mm -hmm. you know, raising prices isn't always a function of costs rising. Sometimes right. raising prices is a function of demand warrants it and people are willing to pay for more for my product. And we, we mix these two things, which is the price has gone up because the underlying cost to make that product and distribute that product has risen. There's also the price has gone up because there's limited supply or there's outsized demand for that product and businesses are able to raise price without because it's more valuable to that end consumer today. Great point. And that's just an, an overall win for the retailer. When that happens. And I, I think we don't talk about that. We're like, oh, the price has gone up and, you know. Right. And maybe the product warrants it instead yeah, exactly. of inflation is driving it. Huge difference. It's true. Right. Like, you know, there's some products, right, that like if you raise it 10%, people might still pay it with no reason for it other than you just think you can charge more and get more. Right, exactly. Yeah, I wonder how often that happens. I would imagine quite a lot, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's the opposite of, you know, sending out coupons to get everyone in the store so that, you know, you can sell more, but you got them in because of a lower price. Right. Yeah, I can think of a few retailers that I feel that like Lululemon, every time you go, the leggings are another $15 more. And it's like, ah, okay, um, here we are. Still going to buy them for the kids. Okay. So I think some retailers definitely get away with it for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's people, you know, you know, there's a lot of brand equity in that concept and there's others as well. So Exactly. Well, we covered a what lot of think? different. What do you think of holiday sales? Where are holiday sales going here? Yeah, I, I think the I think the consumer mindset is there that they, you know, we are accustomed to certain lifestyle spending has been up for so many years now post COVID that I, I do think it's going to continue. Uh, I'm a little concerned about consumers taking on more debt because of how high interest rates are. So I think credit card debt rising is a concern and we're kind of bumping up against a threshold where that becomes a material change to people's lives, um, where interest really starts to impact them. I don't know that we're quite there yet, but I think people are unwilling to give up the, the, the purchasing that they've enjoyed for so many years. So that's going to keep driving it, whether that's a good thing or bad thing for the consumer. 
is another story, but I think the sales will remain will remain strong this season. And to your point, back to school is only a few months ago. So although economic factors are shifting, you know, pretty quickly, I don't think we're going to see a whole reversal in a few months. So we just had strong sales. I think that's going to carry through. Cool. So we covered a lot of different factors from holiday sales, where retailers are, are finding their profitability to challenges with development, limited supply, um, and why retailers are still focused on stores. So all of these factors holistically lead us back to our topic, which is why we expect the intense competition and fervor, if you will, for the demand for retail space to continue definitely through the end of the year and probably into next year as well. For everyone listening, we're so glad you could join us for this month's episode of What's in Store. As always, reach out to Chris or I anytime with further thoughts, questions, or ideas on retail real estate. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and we'll see you again very soon. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.